Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And the topic today was actually one that was suggested by our senior editor, Allison, after she stumbled across a little bit of information about it. Uh, She came running over to my desk and said, you know who you should do? Uh, and she was spot on about the interesting nature of the story. It's got everything. So those of you who love maritime exploration covered. Unfortunately, there's also horrible treatment of indigenous peoples. There are treacherous, treacherous waters, treacherous shipmen, a mercenary switch in loyalty to countries. There's some mutiny action and there's even a little bit of mermaid action going on. So it's a, a pretty full tale. So full, in fact, that we had to uh, round it out into two episodes because it ran super duper long. So we are going to t- be talking today about Henry Hudson, uh, who was an explorer and commander of ocean vessels, and the four voyages that he took while he was trying to suss out a new trade route for various different bosses. And it is a wild ride. It is also a cold ride. So pack pack a jacket or sweater and maybe bring a flotation vest. So as is often the case when we go this far back in history, uh, the case where pretty much Henry H- Hudson appeared on the world stage fully formed as an adult human uh, we know he was born sometime around 1565, but we don't really know exactly when. And various accounts suggest that it could have been any time in the 1560s or 1570s. We also know that he was born in England, and that's basically all we know about the entirety of his youth and even his early adulthood. Even the portraits that are usually identified of him as a young man or a child could really be someone else. And there's not a lot of certainty and instead a whole lot of wobbliness about his whole life outside of the maritime adventures that wound up making him historically famous. Yeah, there's some uh, historians that think that even the portraits that were painted of him as an adult were painted after the fact and taken just from random descriptions. And they may or might not actually look like him at all. Uh, we do know that he did marry at some point. And that he and his wife, Catherine, we do not know her maiden name, had three sons together named Richard, John, and Oliver. He's just not really much in the record until 1607. He was a ship's commander by that time, and that marked his first major voyage. And prior to that, he has to have had some kind of seafaring experience to have risen up to the role of commander. So there's all kinds of speculation that he probably, as you would expect, started in a low-ranking role and then worked his way up. Yeah, but that's literally just stabs in the dark. We do not know. All all we know is that it would be really bizarre and freaky if someone just said, here, you want to be a commander? So it's assumed by most historians that he either learned from local uh, sea vessels or he traveled with other sailors and kind of picked up the trade that way. Or he did the usual like start as the, you know, cabin boy and slowly came up through the ranks. But it's still a mystery. Uh, so on that 1607 voyage that Tracy mentioned, Hudson was employed by an English firm called the Muscovy Company, and his family actually had a lot of connections to this company. And his directive was to find a northern passage to Asia. And Hudson was chosen by the directors of the Muscovy Company because he had, quote, secret information that would help him navigate a new passage. At this point, there was a huge competition going on globally to try to secure better shipping routes to more lucrative trade locations. Both private companies and governments were sending expeditions out, hoping to be the first to discover some previously unknown passage, particularly to India or Asia. 
yeah, those were very lucrative places to trade, and you had to do a lot of wheeling and dealing to get sort of land-based trade routes passable. We'll talk about that a little bit in one of the upcoming voyages. So uh, the secret information that Hudson was believed to have had was most likely a pamphlet that was written 80 years earlier, so decades earlier, by an agent of the Bristol Trading Company named Robert Thorne that suggested a northern passage to Cathay. Commanding a vessel named the Hopewell, Hudson set out from London on April 23rd. The crew included William Collins, who was the mate, James Young, John Coleman, who was the bosun, uh, John Cook, James Boobery, James Scrutton, John Place, Thomas Baxter, Richard Day, James Knight, and Henry's son, John Hudson, as the ship's boy. And the first of Hudson's four lifetime trips was actually plagued by ice in its early stages, which ended up cutting things a little bit short. This is a theme that's going to play out over and over throughout this whole story. Uh, though the voyage had begun in spring to hedge bets for favorable weather, the winter persisted and really caused problems. And the thinking had been that because the Northern Pole received five months of continuous daylight and sunshine, that it was going to be unfrozen and smooth sailing in the spring. But that theory was, of course, not correct. Hudson and his crew managed to reach Greenland in early June. They spent two weeks mapping the coastline before turning northeast toward Spitsbergen Island. And that's where they discovered areas populated by pods of whales. This was really lucrative information for the whaling industry. Hudson and his crew then spent the next several months exploring and mapping the islands around Greenland. Yeah, it's said that once that news got back to um, London and then spread, there were just whaling ships kind of swarming the area, which is unfortunate, uh, but interesting and, as we said, unfortunately, lucrative part of this voyage. But the ongoing frozen conditions really meant that no new passages or trade routes were going to be discovered this time around. The voyage was finally called off uh, when they just could go no further. And the Hopewell returned to England on September 15th. And in addition to the whale locations, the voyage was noteworthy because it had traveled farther north than any other known expedition at the time. And before we get to his second voyage, which he began planning immediately, do you want to take a word from a sponsor? Let's do. So after that somewhat disappointing first voyage in 1607, Hudson spent the winter preparing to make another go at finding a northern passage to Asia. So he had gotten back in September, and then he basically just buckled down and did tons of research and map reading and and plotting of courses. Uh, And this time... The plan was going to be to travel north of Russia through the Arctic waters, still trying to find that passage to Asia. The voyage once again set out in the spring, and this time it was on April 22nd, 1608. Hudson once again took the Hopewell, and his crew was quite tiny. It was only 14 men, plus his son John. Only three of those 14 men had been with him on the first voyage, so he had quite a bit of turnover. The crew members included Robert Jewett, who was the master's mate, He recorded his own accounts of Hudson's travels, and he will become a rather pivotal character later on in the story. Uh, Also traveling with him were Arnold Ludlow, John Cook, who was the bosun, Philip Stacy, who was the carpenter, John Barnes, John Branch, who was the cook, John Adry, James Strutton, Michael Fierce, Thomas Hills, Richard Thompson, Robert Rayner, and Humphrey Gilby. 
the Muscovy Company was pretty fearful at this point that if Tsar Ivan the Terrible died, England was going to lose its access to land passages for trade that Russia had controlled. So they really, really wanted Hudson to figure out a new way to go by sea. Yeah, they really wanted to hedge their bets so that they would have some options other than land travel for trade. Uh, but once again, you know, they're still going into the same latitudes at the same time. So icy conditions impeded progress. Several of the crew members, including the carpenter who was on board to continue the reinforcement of the ship that had begun at port so that they could hopefully have a better go at these icy waters, were taken quite ill very early on. Hudson was able to get to the archipelago of Novaya Zemlya, but he couldn't go any farther. He tried to go south into the Kara Sea, but that was frozen. And at this point, Hudson was starting to have some problems with his crew. After the blockage at Novaya Zemlya, which happened at the beginning of July, he had actually decided that what he was going to do was head to North America. But he didn't tell the crew. Uh, so as they turned away from the Russian archipelago, the men aboard thought that they were calling it quits like the first voyage had and that they were headed home. It was August when the men finally realized that they were not going back to London and there was almost a mutiny. When the decision finally was made to return to England and abort the mission yet again, Hudson wrote that the crew had not forced his hand in the matter. This is often speculated to have either been written under duress or as a means to placate the crew in the face of a potential coup. Yeah, it was clear based on the journals that were being kept by the people aboard that that were literate that they were unhappy with him. And I think there was concern that, uh, you know, they would somehow be in trouble that the voyage had ended. But in his journal, Hudson wrote, quote, I used all diligence to arrive at London, and therefore I now gave my crew a certificate under my hand of my free and willing return without persuasion or force by any one or more of them. For when we were at Nova Zemlia on 6th of July, void of hope of a northeast passage, I therefore resolved to use all means I could to sail to the northwest. To me, that would sound so suspicious. Like if you were a boss in a company and you got a note that said, we had to cut the voyage short, no one made me do it. <laughs> yeah, it does when, sound when you raise of, an eyebrow. He's protesting a little too much on that. Yeah. Uh, accounts also indicate that even at the start of the journey, Hudson and Jewett had had some kind of conflict between the two of them. And Hudson described him as, quote, a man of mean tempers. And because Hudson had failed to find a sea passage to Asia a second time, the Muscovy Company was really pretty uninterested in pursuing the idea further. To their thinking, two times out, they really didn't get very far, so it's probably not worth throwing more resources at this. And they had also lost all faith in Hudson. So when he came back and requested to make a third attempt at finding a northern passage to Asia, he was flatly refused. The most interesting footnote from the 1608 voyage is probably the log entry on when they spotted the mermaid on June 15th. Crewman Thomas Hills and Robert Rayner were the first to see it and yelled for the rest of the crew to come and see. Hudson described the mermaid really matter-of-factly in his entry as having long black hair, pale skin, a woman's breasts, and the tail of a porpoise, which was speckled like a mackerel. His log indicated that she looked, quote, earnestly on the men as they gathered on the side of the ship to look at her. Yeah, he pretty clearly believed mermaids were a real thing. There's no, like, speculation about was this some sea animal? He's like, there was a mermaid. We saw it. Here are the details. 
It's kind of interesting. Uh, before we get to his third voyage, do you want to take a word from a sponsor? Let's do that. So at this point, uh, Hudson is back in England. He really wants to continue his exploration. He feels like he has some plans and ideas that will get him further than these previous two attempts. But he really could not find any backers in England. Uh, his reputation was pretty damaged at that point. So instead, he joined up with one of England's rivals in this whole world trade uh, race, which was the Dutch East India Company. And he uh, hooked up with them in 1609. His new employers made Hudson commander of a ship named the Half Moon, and sent him on a mission that basically had the same orders as before. He was supposed to find a passage to Asia via the waters north of Russia. And the Half Moon was apparently not a great vessel. It was a little bit old. It needed some work. It sat high in the water. It was expected that it was going to be troublesome if they encountered any type of inclement weather or heavy winds. And Hudson actually tried to petition his new bosses to try to get a different ship for the voyage but he received a reply from the Dutch East India Company that said, quote, the Half Moon is the only ship at the disposal of the Dutch East India Company. We can give you no other ship. If you do not want the Half Moon, the company will be obliged to find another captain to carry out this assignment. His contract with the Dutch East India Company was really specific about the objectives that Hudson was supposed to meet. And it was even stipulated that his wife and children had to live in Holland under the care of the company while he was to be at sea. There was also a really clear stipulation that all journals and logs kept by Hudson would be turned over to the company at the end of the voyage. Once again on this voyage, confronted by impassable ice, Hudson made the exact same decision that he had attempted to follow through on uh, with his second voyage when he was working for the Muscovy Company. He headed for North America. He thought there might be a passage to the Pacific Ocean through the North American continent. And there's speculation that he may have heard this first through famed explorer and his friend, John Smith. Maybe because they knew of his somewhat rash decision during the second voyage, or maybe because they knew he had been discussing North America with John Smith. The Dutch East India Company amended his mission contract before the half moon set sail. And this uh, amendment included the word, the wording that Hudson was, quote, to think of discovering no other route or passage except the route around the north or northeast above Nova Zembla. Yeah. Hey, don't get any funny ideas like last time around, champ. <laughs> you will be in breach of contract. Uh, apparently, he didn't feel so strongly about that agreement, but uh, we'll get to that in just a bit. So the crew that he took with him numbered between 16 and 20. Accounts differ, and most of them say that 20 would be a very large crew, but some do say that there were 20. Uh, they included both English and Dutch sailors, and there was a huge language gap between them because they did not speak each other's language, nor did they speak any language that any of them had in common. Uh they also had different seafaring experience. Some of them were accustomed to cold water. Some were accustomed to warmer waters. Their experiences did not really overlap. This made for a general distrust uh, among them. Like they all felt that the others weren't as experienced or weren't going to be as able to cope with changing situations as, as they were, you know, it was kind of a problem. So in his journal, Jewett, who despite having friction with Hudson was on board for this third voyage described the Dutch sailors as, quote, an ugly lot. Because of the requirement that Hudson hand over his journals to the company after the voyage, 
Stewart's accounts are pretty much everything we know about it. Yeah. Uh, so it's there's some bias there, probably. They're pretty basic uh, journals, and you can read all of them online, and we'll uh, include a link to his journals from this voyage. But what we know is that in April, the half moon set out from Amsterdam, and by l- mid to late May, it became parent- apparent that once again, getting beyond Novaya Zemlya was going to be impossible yet again. It's kind of that thing where you, people keep saying, if you keep trying the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, you're kind of an idiot. Um, <laughs> he kind of was doing that. Uh, the crew was once again unhappy. They were cold. They were distrustful of Hudson's leadership because the few that were repeats from the last voyage were like, didn't we just do this? Uh, and some level of revolt did take place, though not a full mutiny. And Hudson did indeed turn towards North America. Unlike in the second voyage, though, Hudson told the crew about the plan, and he actually offered them a choice. They could use the information he had, which included maps and notes from John Smith, to head for warmer waters. Or they could keep on trying to force their way through the icy waters of Davis's Strait at the north end of the Labrador Sea to try to find a passage to Asia, since a northeast passage really seemed impossible. So... Not very surprisingly, the crew opted to head for warmer waters. Yeah, and just for clarity, so he offered them a choice, but they were he was still like, we're going through North America. We can either go north through the really cold part or go a little south through the warmer part. So they had a choice, but it still was his plan to completely reverse their, their initial um, orders. And despite traveling through some incredibly rough storms, and being slightly delayed at one point by trying to chase another ship down for a period of time. And it's speculated that they were after them for plunder to steal their booty or their supplies. The Half Moon did indeed reach North America. Uh, they landed in what is now Nova Scotia in July of 1609. The Half Moon traveled down the American coast, exploring and making contact with Native Americans. And while Jewett describes the natives as friendly and welcoming in his journals, He's also very clear that he didn't trust them. Jewett's journals detail all kinds of ill behavior on the part of the Half Moon's crew toward the Native Americans that they encountered. There are lots of tales of theft and looting and even kidnapping in his daily entries. They kept on encountering and interacting with Natives along their journey, despite their very obvious xenophobia. Yeah, I feel compelled to point out it was not uncommon for explorers who landed at North America or any foreign lands to kidnap the natives of those lands or the indigenous peoples and try to bring them back to Europe as sort of novelties. Uh, So it's not unusual that they did that, still reprehensible, uh, but pretty common in the day. And, you know, they kind of just thought they were exploiting people that were not equal to them. So they were just they just felt like they were entitled to go and steal their things and do horrible things. It's quite awful. Uh, but we are going to cliffhang you there. So we are mid-voyage, and we know that. But things are about to take a pretty significant turn. Uh, and so rather than delve into that now, which we do not really have time to get deep into, we're going to save that for the next time. Uh, and instead, I, we're going to shift gears and go to listener mail. And I have uh, a piece of mail from our listener, Miss Jade. And it is about our House of Worth podcast. Uh Jade says, hello, ladies. I'm an avid listener and was so extremely excited to listen to the recent episode on the House of Worth. I'm a professional seamstress and costume designer. Listening to the podcast has certainly gotten me through some very long days in the shop. 
I share Holly's love of not only historical clothing, but also of undergarments and foundation garments. I'm still trying to sift through the archives to find your podcast on undergarments that you recently mentioned on the show. That was a while back. I want to say that was fall of 2012 to help narrow that for her. Uh, it was lovely to learn about the life of Worth himself as well as the brand. There was one thing that stuck out to me, however, that was a bit off. It was the use of the word stitcher in regards to the people that sew couture garments. The correct word is seamstress, as stitcher implies a machine operator and not one with exacting skills in garment construction. A stitcher is someone who, say, sews the left patch pocket on a pair of jeans in a denim factory for 20 years. Many people in the business of making bespoke garments get their panties in a wrinkle about language here. Seamstress is gender specific, and we haven't quite figured out a way around that yet, as there are many men out there that are quite skilled in garment construction as well. Tailor, traditionally a trade and title held by men, is actually a specific skill set separate from being a seamstress, though you can, of course, be both like myself. There are different camps about the interchangeable use of the word stitcher and seamstress, but especially when speaking to people who are in the business of constructing couture garments, uh, these people are masters of the art. So maybe I cleared that up or just muddied the water. Uh, it, I... I, a long time ago, this is one of my personal peccadilloes. I just kind of adopted Stitcher for everything because of the very reasons she points out. Uh, seamstress doesn't apply to everyone and it seems weird to use. Ditto with Taylor, even though I feel, while Taylor is usually associated with men just as a word on its own, it feels less male specific to me. So I will use that interchangeably with men and women, but I do tend to use Stitcher and I, I certainly don't mean to offend anyone who is an accomplished uh, couture sewer. It's just, for me, it seems just really bothers me because I feel like it's exclusionary. Um, but I do understand. I, like she pointed out, there are many camps and, and schools of thought on this and uh, not everyone feels the same about it. So, But it's a great thing to point out and think about. It's one of those things I probably should have mentioned in the podcast. So my apologies that I didn't because those are those words that are, they become very specific and emblematic of, certain sort of levels of of skill and degrees of knowledge. And it's kind of like how when I worked in the library for a long time, people always wanted to call me a librarian, but I was not. I do not have a master of library science and I would try to correct them. But eventually I got tired and just said, whatever works, uh, which I meant no disrespect to the actual librarians in my life. But sometimes it you get into a very awkward discussion that becomes about esoteric nomenclature to the average person. So that is the scoop. And then many thanks to Jade for pointing out that little uh, gap in my uh, information that I shared. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at History at Facebook.com slash History at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and at Pinterest.com slash History. You can also get delightful Missed in History merchandise at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to research uh, a little bit of info related to what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in the words famous explorers and you are going to get loads of stuff. A lot of brief articles on famous explorers throughout history, uh, including Henry Hudson. If you would like to visit us on our history website, you can go to mistinhistory.com. You will get archive of every episode that has ever been done, as well as show notes for uh, the more recent episodes since Tracy and I have been on the podcast, as well as the occasional blog post. And you get to look at the fun pictures that we associate with different podcasts to promote them, which I often like because I'm a very visual person. Uh, but you can do that and a whole lot more at our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com, and our site, MissedInHistory.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 